2019 was such an incredible year. There were so many amazing things to have happened, and I can't wait to share them all with you today. So this episode, we're going to talk about 10 things from 2019 that advanced women's health. I'm super excited. Let's jump right in. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. So we all know that 2019 was a tumultuous year in terms of things that were happening in the country and in the the world. But no matter your political stance, there were some great things to happen in 2019 in terms of women's health. There was some new discoveries, some new medications on the market, and so we are going to discuss all of those. Some of these medications are for women who are in their reproductive stages for peripartum and postpartum, and some of these medications apply to women who are menopausal or postmenopausal. So no matter your age, this episode is going to go through 10 of those new exciting advances in women's health. So this will really apply to everyone who listens to this podcast. So starting with number one, there is a new type of medication being worked on created that is a non-hormonal option for menopausal hot flashes. I think this is a great option because while I do definitely think there is still lots of fear around menopausal hormone replacement, which actually is probably not as dangerous and should not be seen with as much fear as it has been, it's still a great option to have something else in our arsenal for women who are um, adverse to taking estrogen or hormone replacement or for whom they simply can't take hormone replacement. So this new class of medications is called a neurokinin-3 receptor antagonist. And if you're not a scientist or a pharmacist, basically it is a new type of medication that blocks signals to the brain. And by blocking those signals to the brain, it has been shown to decrease hot flashes. This medication is in the early phases of it being studied. So there was a 12-week study done, which showed it reduced hot flashes by about 50%. And what we are doing in early studies is looking for its safety. So this is a really exciting discovery. It's definitely something to keep your eye on. And I will be doing my best to inform you as this goes on. This is definitely going to be a long-term project. So I don't foresee that we may have this medication on the market and ready to use quickly, but it is definitely being um, investigated. It is definitely being studied and uh, people are really excited about the idea and advancement of a new non-hormonal option for menopausal hot flashes. 
Moving on to the second thing in my list of 10 is a new as needed medication for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And that's a mouthful. So we also call this HSDD for short. And this medication is uh, called a bromanolanotide. And the brand name is called Vilesi. And this is, again, an injectable medication that you can use as needed to improve arousal and desire. So the way this medication is intended to be used is it is a self-injectable that you can use a few hours before intercourse. I believe I was taught the the box will say inject 30 or 45 minutes before. However, it does seem to last several hours. So I might recommend using this before date night, uh, spend time with your partner, and um, then you might be feeling ready to go after that. And this is a really great option because one of the things it provides is an option to use it as needed, as opposed to something that you would have to take every day just for your libido concerns. Now, libido is a really big issue for many women. It affects their relationship and it affects how they feel about themselves. So the way we diagnose HSDD is if it is bothersome to you and um, it is causing distress to you. So if you have low libido and it really doesn't bother you and it doesn't bother your partner, this not something that you necessarily need, but if libido is something that is concerning to you, this is a good option. It is a melanocortin receptor agonist, and that means it actually acts to activate receptors in the brain that make you interested in sex. It is actually approved for premenopausal women. However, there are many NAMS providers, which is the North American Menopause Society, and other sexual health physicians who will probably feel comfortable prescribing it to menopausal patients as well. So I would consider it an arsenal whether you're premenopausal or you're postmenopausal. It does have a side effect of nausea. And in studies where patients use this eight times a month, it increased nausea by a good amount, about 40%. However, I do think eight times a month may be a pretty big dose. And so if you're using this once a month, maybe twice a month, it'll be something where we'd have to see if there are side effects for, for, for the woman who is taking it. We think in terms of its cost, it might be around $100 for four of these injectables. So if you are using this a few times a year or if you're using it once a month, it might very well be quite cost effective. So moving on to number three, for women who are using birth control, there is a new year-long birth control vaginal ring. It covers you for 13 cycles. You put it in the vagina and you can leave it there for an entire year. So this is really exciting because we see such improvements in efficacy for long-acting contraception options, and those include intrauterine devices and the implants in the arm. And what most likely leads to such efficacy is that there's almost no user error. You can't take an IUD out and you can't take the implant out of your own arm. So the year-long birth control option is great because it serves as an intermediary between something that you're taking every day 
and something that cannot be reversible. So you can definitely reverse this. A patient can take it out themselves. If for some reason they do find they have side effects or they no longer like it, or they no longer want to use it, but also it provides this buffer system where it can be used for an entire year. And that is going to have great efficacy in reducing risk of pregnancy and reduce, reducing risk of user error. I also see that there's many tremendous benefits for this, in, including just insurance coverage for women who do like to take their birth control on a daily basis. So some of my patients do this with their birth control method now. If it's a daily option, they just skip the placebo week, but then they can run into problems with getting it covered um, by their insurance. And so this is a really great option for women and hopefully we'll have some more options like this. So this is new, really excited about it and really interested to see how we can improve women's quality of life and also make birth control easier for them. Not only is this great for women who are trying to prevent pregnancy, but of course, women who are in perimenopause, this might also be an option for controlling those irregular, frustrating bleeding patterns. This might be something that I also think about using for those patients as well. So there's so many applications for this. I think it's super exciting. So on to number four, and while we're on the topic of women of reproductive age, let's also talk about the brand new medication that was FDA approved for postpartum depression. And this is huge because this medication is for severe cases of postpartum depression. This medication is an IV dose of medication that has to be approved by your physician is in something called the REMS program. So that means the physician also has to have be in that program to be able to provide this medication. And it's for extreme and severe postpartum depression where the patient must be hospitalized in order to receive this medication. It's an IV medication that is slowly infused over 60 hours. So for about two and a half days. And the reason that you need to be monitored is because there are some um, side effects that are concerning, such as loss of consciousness and the oxygenation status must be monitored. Now, while these sound kind of harsh, severe postpartum depression has extreme risks, including suicide or depression or, you know, really ex extensive risks that the, the benefits um, of having to be monitored or being in the hospital are going to have to outweigh those risks. Um, and so this is a really exciting option because we need to expand the repertoire for patients. This medication is different than other medications on the market, which are daily oral, um, usually SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, um, that can help with depression. So this acts very quickly and is really reserved for those severe resistant cases. But this is a really exciting advancement that is great to know that we have for women. The brand name of this medication is called Zorelso. There is another medication that has been used for premenopausal women for low libido concerns as well. And this medication is called Flobanserine, or its brand name is called Addy. Addy was not new in 2019, but there was some updates to this medication that are really exciting. When the medication was initially launched, it was also in the REMS program. Now, the REMS program has some barriers to be able to prescribe this medication. For example, the physician must be enrolled in the REMS program. 
And every time a patient wants to pick up this medication, they have to sign a release, they have to speak with a pharmacist. And so all these little things were big barriers. It was also really costly, which also was a major um, barrier to women who were interested in trying something for their libido concerns. One of the major reasons, and you could even say controversy, that this medication was in the REMS program is that during the studies, they found there was a, a slight increased risk of syncope, which is a feeling of dizziness associated with low blood pressure, and worsened when women drink alcohol. Now, many women do engage in alcohol and drink alcohol, and so this was a, kind of a hard stop. This was a medication that was really kind of contraindicated if anyone drank almost any alcohol because it's a daily medication. However, the makers of this drug were not terribly convinced, and so after more research on this, this point, they actually found that alcohol use, especially if it was moderate or light, and when taken, uh, this medication was taken two hours later after the use of alcohol, really didn't significantly impact its um, functioning or impairment or you know, health problems for women later. So the FDA did release that restriction that you cannot drink alcohol on this medication, there is still the warning, you know, you should drink light alcohol and you should separate the alcohol and the use of this medication for about two hours. And again, it is a daily medication. So it's something you have to take every night. But that was actually very exciting because a lot of people, that was a barrier for some people. And not only that, but the company did find some ways to make this medication a little bit more cost effective for people. And those two things are going to help it be a viable option for people. Adi or flibanserine is in the SSRI class. It's in a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class that is the class typically called as a broad name antidepressants. It does not mean that we think you're depressed. It just works in the same mechanism, but this time it helps to improve um, arousal and desire. So things that help women with their libido concerns. So it's another option that we want to include in that repertoire for women. So if we're thinking about women's health and we're thinking about women's sexual health and sexual function, these are huge advancements that I'm excited to say happened this year. Interestingly, flamanserine, similar to bromanolanotide or the Vilesi, are both um, FDA approved for premenopausal women, but many of us are going to still be offering these and considering these medications, I guess you could say off-label for women who are postmenopausal. So it's still on the table, ladies, and definitely, I think, an option that we um, should study and then approve for premenopausal patients as well. And while we're on the topic, I have one more advancement in the field of women's sexual health, and that is on the new position statements about testosterone use in postmenopausal women. So testosterone has been used off-label for many years for low libido, and it's been hard to study because unfortunately, testosterone is not FDA approved in the United States, and therefore it is hard to study because it has to be compounded, which is means that the doses are not super standardized, so they really are hard to study. But so many of us who uh, work in the women's health field and in postmenopausal field have been really eagerly awaiting studies on testosterone for women. And there are some important findings that I want to share with you. 
the latest research on testosterone is that topical testosterone in physiologic doses for women does improve sexual function. So the key point is that it has to be in a physiologic dose. So I'm just going to break this down really simple. Topical testosterone in a very low dose for a woman is going to be a physiologic range. You do not need a supra therapeutic level of testosterone. For example, I see these very often in women who use pellet injections. They have supra therapeutic, very high levels of testosterone that are really deemed unsafe and they are unnecessary. Super therapeutic levels of testosterone have really significant side effects that I warn about all the time, but I'm going to list them again. And those include um, acne so severe that it can leave permanent scarring, hair loss, permanent deepening of your voice, and permanent enlargement of the clitoris, which we call clitoromegaly. So you do not need super therapeutic or very high levels of a testosterone, which is typically in a pellet form or in very high doses of either an oral testosterone. Typically, a low-dose transdermal application of testosterone is going to be um, physiologic, and you should and could check a woman's testosterone levels after being on it to make sure that they are in physiologic or normal ranges for women, which overall is actually quite low. But again, it's important that they are not too, too high. Now, the main indication for using topical testosterone has been for low libido. Oftentimes, I do see that patients have been put on it for other indications, such as fatigue or um, for concerns for muscle mass. And really, the, the research and data shows that it really only has uh, strong implications to be used for low libido. So if you are fatigued, there might be other things you might want to consider. And again, I'm talking about really natural menopause here. So you have to also understand kind of the, the context in which I'm talking about the use for topical testosterone is really in that natural menopause for women who find themselves with low libido. There was no increased risk of breast cancer um, when looking at testosterone replacement for short-term use, so that is really good. But we still need to, again, have longer-term studies of, of topical physiologic doses of testosterone, and we should push for the FDA to approve its use for women, although I see that as being something a little bit farther off in the future. But who knows? Maybe I'll be talking about that next year. We will see. I'm excited to say, moving on, there has also been some new advances in breast imaging and breast health. And I, I want to briefly touch upon these because I think that there's a lot more to come, but there's some exciting news coming out in the field of breast health. We know that mammograms, our current screening tests for breast cancer, are not 100% perfect, and I think that there's many scientists, innovators who are looking at new ways to screen for breast disease. So there is some new imaging tests, including molecular breast imaging and some other imaging modalities that are being worked on. So more to come. At the same time, there are some trials looking at non-hormonal medications for breast cancer reduction. And this is a nice advancement because Hormonal options, basically hormonal blockers, 
while there definitely have benefits in reducing breast cancer risk or recurrence, definitely have side effects that are really severe for many women. And sometimes this is so severe, it limits their use. So these non-hormonal options are drugs used for other types of cancers, for example, T-cell lymphoma or blood and bone marrow disorders. So I personally am really excited to see what is going to come in the breast cancer health world in the future. So more to come on that. Moving on to uh, migraines. So 2019 was a huge year for some new medications for controlling migraines. We know that most migraine sufferers are women. And so this is really a huge topic for women's health. Most of these or some of these medications actually were FDA approved in 2018, but really became used in 2019. A lot of these medications are in a class of medications or drugs called monoclonal antibodies, and they interfere with calcitonin gene-related peptides, a protein that inflames nerve endings and is thought to really contribute to migraines. These are injectables, and they have been really improving women's health in terms of um, migraine severity and migraine frequency. These most likely will need to be approved by a neurologist and a migraine specialist, but they are great advancements for women's health. I'm really excited to see so many patients having so much success because I, while I don't uh, myself um, treat often um, with these medications because I'm not a migraine expert, so many of my patients who have um the hormonal fluctuations that affect their quality of life also suffer with migraines. So it does kind of have some cross-section into what I tend to see in my consultative practice. So I'm thrilled to see the advancements being made in um, women's migraine health. And moving along, we're actually on number nine here. So there's only two left. Moving on, there's been a lot of new advancements and medications for Alzheimer's disease. And again, I'm not a bona fide neurologist, so I don't want to comment too much, but there is definitely some new advancements in new medications for Alzheimer's disease. But what I specifically wanted to touch on is the idea that we are, as as a menopause specialist and hormone specialist, looking at the use of hormone replacement to either delay or decrease the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And initially, when the Women's Health Initiative Memory Study came out, which was in the early 2000s, there did not seem to be an association between the use of hormone replacement and an improvement in memory or a decrease in the um, diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. However, That study looked only at women who are 65 years of age and older. And as we have really solidified the timing hypothesis, which is that hormone replacement therapy taken within 10 years of menopause has many benefits for women, including a reduction in heart disease and decrease in all-cause mortality. We are also starting to wonder, gee, if we use hormone replacement therapy early, very close to the onset of menopause, and study this for many decades, does that help to either delay the diagnosis or reduce the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease? And there's been some positive studies on that, although they have been mixed, and it is complex and not straightforward because we have to wait many years to see the outcomes of these studies. 
but there definitely is some new interest in investigating the use of early application of hormone replacement therapy for women um, and seeing if this does improve brain function and cognition and perhaps delay the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So we are still waiting final studies on that, but it is definitely something that is being studied. So there is more to come. All right, so we made it through to number 10. And number 10 is there have been advancements in opening the dialogue and continuing discussion around something called precision medicine. So you may be wondering to yourself, what in the heck is precision medicine? And it is a broad term, and it is a term that's signaling we need to think about care for all patients in terms of their individualized genetic makeup, molecular profile, um, and then also in terms of their sex and gender makeup and their quality of life and their goals. So it's really, really a, a way of saying we can't blanket treat everyone the exact same way. And not only by using a thoughtful approach and shared decision-making, but actually looking at someone's molecular makeup, their genetic makeup, their individual risk and benefit profile. As we're starting to learn more, we're starting to see who may um, have side effects to certain medications, and we may be able to predict that before we even give you a medication or who is going to have a more aggressive type of um, either cancer or a a more severe type of um, migraine or postpartum depression that we can be proactive about it. So there's so much thought being put into the idea of precision medicine in the future. Now, it's probably not quite ready for prime time, but many, many people are not only thinking about this, investigating it and studying it, but thinking about how precision medicine really needs to be a part of women's health because each cell has a sex and therefore the way a medication is um, metabolized or the a way somebody may have side effects for a certain medication may definitely be predetermined by the inner workings of each cell to the molecular level. So, so much is being studied about this that I am so excited for it. The next decade, this is probably going to unfold over years. And it's just, it's a really exciting time to be an investigator, a scientist, and a clinician to be able to offer treatment that might be individualized to patients. And of course, for me, women in particular. All right, guys. So that's it. We have covered 10 of the major advancements in women's health in 2019. And by no means is that a complete list. This is just the ones that I got to pick. If you have more that you want me to know about, that you want me to discuss, send me a message. Please find a way to connect with me. You can connect with me either through Instagram. I'm at Hormone Health Doc. You can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD or on Facebook as well. I'm Heather Hirsch MD. If you've not been to my website, it's heatherhirschmd.com. 
pretty easy. And you can also search through some of my older podcasts and you can also find ways to connect with me and email me there. If you want to connect, if you want to collaborate, if you want to ask questions, I, I love this community that we have formed together and I'm so excited to be a part of it and to be a voice, but I really learned so much from you. I really learned so much from my collaborations with others that it's just been such an exciting year. Um, I'm really pumped to see what the next year has in store. If you liked this podcast, it is slowly inching its way up into the top 100 podcasts in medicine in the United States. So please give it a nice review or some stars because that actually helps in the iTunes analytics world so that more people will be able to see it. So I totally appreciate you taking the couple of seconds out of your day to write a quick review. I'm super busy as well, and I know how hard these things can be to do. So if you are listening to this, go ahead, do it right now. I will thank you so much for participating in helping to support this podcast, which I do out of the passion of my heart. And again, to help expose those gaps in care and really keep you updated, educated, uninformed, and excited about what women's health has in store for you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful holiday season. Have a wonderful 2020. I can't wait to see what's in store and have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. Bye-bye.